Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About Crossbows, a podcast about crossbows and crossbow-adjacent topics. I am joined today by Adam Franti from the podcast Murder Hobos, and we're going to talk about Guts von Berlingen, uh, a 15th and 16th century robber knight in the Holy Roman Empire, and his relationship to crossbows and other fine topics. Uh, Thank you for joining me, Adam. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's a, a fun idea for a podcast, I think. Thanks. That's it's. I mean, it's entirely an excuse for me to still talk about crossbows while I'm writing a book <laughs> that is not about crossbows, uh, which made me miss it sorely. So, uh, first of all, let's let's talk about who who is Guts van Berlingen and what what is a robber knight, particularly in the context of the late 15th, early 16th century. Uh, so Guts van Berlingen was a he he calls himself a poor knight, um, poor in not having a lot of money, rather than being bad at being a knight. Um, he was born into essentially like an impoverished noble family in Franconia, sort of South central Germany um, today. But he, he was essentially a knight who worked as a mercenary. He, he worked as sort of a hired warrior for various causes within his kind of lordly structure. He, he was a, a, like a cupbearer and a squire for a couple of counts and dukes of the Holy Roman Empire. Friedrich of Ansbach was somebody that he frequently sort of collaborated with in court. And he, around the turn of the 16th century, participated in a, a war called the the War of the Landshut Succession, where a Nuremberger on his side, a friendly Nuremberger, fired a cannonball that took off his right arm uh, at about the wrist. And this is probably what made him the most famous, uh, or the most famous part about Guts von Berlichingen is that he lost his hand when he was in his early 20s, and he continued being a robber knight and a knight in the Holy Roman Empire, working for people and fighting very effectively uh, for at least the next 20 years. And then he was under house arrest for another 16 years and then was brought out of house arrest to assist Charles V in another couple of attempts to beat the Ottomans or whatever else. Uh, So he had a very long career and the balance of it was only with one, only his left hand. He had an iron hand that was made or a couple of iron hands that he used as a prosthetic that he used for most of his career. So a robber knight was specifically somebody, generally we see the term from like people from Nuremberg or Augsburg, the free cities that had a lot of contention between the kind of rural nobility out in the countryside. And robber knights were generally called robber knights from Nuremberg perspective because they robbed people and they robbed people as part of feuds. And a feud was sort of like an armed litigation between peers, right? So if like Guts was insulted by somebody and demanded they apologize and they said, stuff it, he could send them basically a letter that says, I'm declaring a feud on you. All of your property and family member are subject to capture and ransom. And then he'd go around trying to do that, right? He'd try to capture as much property, capture family members, and the idea behind this wasn't to like murder people or burn down their houses or whatever. It was to get like negotiation leverage for when eventually the feud was settled by an adjudicator that, they, that both parties kind of agreed was fair. So this is very kind of aggressive litigation essentially is, is what it was. And Guts became pretty sought after as a person to be on your side in a feud. So his autobiography that he wrote in the 16th century, like around 1562, just around when he died, is an account of his feud, essentially. So he goes through kind of one by one. This is caused for this reason, and I did it. I worked for this guy, and this is the result. And so there's a ton of detail about how exactly feuds were sort of structured and how they were 
prosecuted and how they were resolved. And in some cases, how they like spilled out into extremely complicated feuds and side feuds and tangents of feuds that are related to like these massive, massive things. But uh, he was pretty effective at them. He was hired, sought after by people to kind of lead feuds and, and fight them for them. Uh, and he was also kind of a celebrated mercenary, which wasn't uncommon for the kind of impoverished nobility. And all of this is, you know, I've seen a lot of kind of pop history stuff about Guts that that's like, oh, he sold his sword to the highest bidder. He went out and, you know, fought against emperors and stuff. And that's partly true. But especially reading his autobiography, there's there's a much deeper sense of kind of loyalty and kind of class consciousness, not in like a Marxist sense, but just like the sense that he sees himself as a warrior. That's his job on Earth. And so he's going to be very professional and do his duty to the letter every time that he possibly can, even to his own personal detriment. And we can understand a little bit that he's he's obviously he's writing his own autobiography. So he's in charge of framing all of these things. So like we shouldn't take his word entirely, but at the very least, you know, a robber knight was somebody who was predominantly participating in feuds and predominantly capturing and destroying property in order to bring the other party to the negotiating table. I think people hear it mercenary and they they imagine something that's very different than what you get in kind of the Middle Ages where there's no standing army, you know, like that right. you have sort of professional soldiers, but they owe their military service to like a previous agreement, usually through land or another agreement with yeah. their lord. And the hiring of, of mercenaries becomes increasingly common in the later Middle Ages because it's just a really good way to get soldiers who actually kind of know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. You know? and, and a lot of the landed elites... Not all of them, but quite a few of them are less interested in going off and fighting. Right. I would rather pay someone else to do it instead. So you get a much more interesting dynamic, but it's not really the same as like, you know, a private military company is now. It's not that kind of like there's no volunteer standing army. Right, right. And like the Holy Roman Empire at this time did have what they call the Swabian League, which was it was a permanently embodied force, which is not to say it was a standing army, right? Like it was a it was a bunch of lords and cities that got together to pay the bills to keep a standing mercenary company working for them. Um, and it, it was involved in the Italian wars and it, uh, the Goths actually ended up getting captured by the Swabian league in uh, a couple of different circumstances. And that led to his house arrest basically. So there, there were some, but, but it's, you're right. It's, it's much more complicated and it's much more effective than I think people want to believe. Right. And like, as a tangent, right, if you look at the history of like mercenaries and you look at the historiography of mercenaries, we, we still kind of approach it in the same sense, like, oh, mercenaries are so inefficient and sloppy and uh, ill-disciplined. And, you know, it was much better when they started getting state armies because you can hang people in state armies way easier. And every time you see like a mercenary like atrocity or a mercenary rebellion or switching sides or something like that, you look a page deeper and you find out, oh, well, they hadn't been paid, right? Like these are yeah. contracted employees. You're not paying them. And so of course they're going to be, they're going to have acts of indiscipline and they're not going to perform as efficiently as people that you can just kill if they get uppy, uppity, you know? <laughs> There's a great trend in the Italian wars because the French are always employing the Swiss pikemen and the Swiss pikemen, yeah. like, they never have enough money for them. So like no. they'll march and they'll <laughs> campaign and then right before battle, they'll be like, now you pay us because we don't fight <laughs> right. if you don't pay us. Yeah. Like marching and hanging out in a camp in Italy was without being paid was acceptable 
<laughs> right. Attacking that fortified position without being paid is absolutely right out. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. want us to charge that fort with its Wagenberg and its cannons, you pay me and then right. do it. Otherwise, I go home. Mm-hmm. And particularly for the Swiss, because they're all fighting in northern Italy, it's actually not very far to get home. So they can just be like, right. yeah. we're just going to yeah. get back up and leave. And <laughs> what are you going to do about it? You know, yeah. versus other ones like uh, for crossbows, there's obviously the famous Genoese mercenaries. Yeah, Genoese crossmen used throughout uh, medieval warfare. Sometimes they have a harder time getting home because if you're fighting in northern France, it's a long way to Genoa. But yeah, uh, it's still. Like, I mean, they remain a very popular force even after, even when like they're famous. I think in English historiography for the failure at Crecy in 1346. Mm-hmm. But like, if you skip forward to the 1370s, Edward III has hired them to defend Calais, the city he took after winning yeah. the Battle of Crecy. So there's clearly this ongoing value in them and this this expertise they bring and. Uh, at times, actually, a slightly higher level of professionalism than some of the people you would get through other means of recruitment. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting and complicated kind of history. And the this kind of period that Goetz is living in is a very exciting time for that. Yeah. Uh, as you're seeing a real shift in how armies are organized. I mean, kind of a little bit before Goetz would have been born would be Charles VII in France, who does kind of set up an almost standing army for France. But then that's disbanded very soon after because it's too expensive. Right. And we see this continued use of mercenaries and kind of a combined with some mercenaries, some more standing troops. And it's an interesting period, an interesting period in which to engage in the kind of formal feuding that Guts does. And I was interested. So I was listening to your episode on, on Guts and your podcast, and you mentioned a a feud over a shooting contest. And I love a good shooting contest. Yeah. And I have actually, so I'm not like an expert in shooting contests, but I read a bit about them and I had never heard of anyone not paying up for one. Yeah. So... I was really interested in in him being hired to to settle this feud over, uh, I presume, an urban shooting competition. This feud happened in 1507. So it was uh, about three years after he lost his hand. Um, and this is after he he's he's had a couple of other feuds uh, sort of on his own. He, he was brought up right in this kind of typical kind of impoverished nobility sort of situation where he was sent off to like an, an uncle to kind of learn the ropes. And then he, he rode with a cousin kind of learning, learning how to do feuds. Right. And so in 1507, he's already pretty well known for, for being an effective wager, I guess, an effective litigator in these sort of feud situations. So people are like looking for him to hire him. So he's hired by a, like a rebel prince of Bohemia at one point. And that feud ends up fizzling out because they stay in an inn and the, the Bohemian Lord, of course, it's it's a typical thing for when you stay at an inn, you put your arms, you display your arms at the inn, right? And this is kind of a way to sort of just say, like, you're traveling nobility or whatever. And Guts, like, tells this guy, like, don't put your arms up because they'll know you're here. And he does anyway. And then so, like, a scout as part of, like, the party of this this Bohemian prince they're supposed to ambush sees that and then they just take a different road. And they like, well, too bad, right? So there's, like, stuff like this happens pretty frequently. But so 1507, I'll just read my translation of this, right? So he's numbering the feuds that he's had. He says, for an eighth feud, uh, a year after the earlier one he just described, many of my good friends who were courtiers of Duke Ulrich von Württemberg, among them my blessed brother-in-law Reinhard, Reinhard von Saxenheim, wrote to me of a tailor named Hans Zindelfinger. Zindelfinger was a match shooter with the musket from Stuttgart and had won a, uh, and had shot at a match in Cologne. The prize was 100 florins for the best shooter, and he won, but the award was not given him. So he spoke to the courtiers at Stuttgart and complained. Then my brother-in-law Reinhardt wrote to me asking that I act on, on the behalf of Zindelfinger. And that was basically it, right? So like he is, the the shooting match was hosted at Cologne and 
essentially the, the sort of courtiers or the, the city government of Cologne refused to pay the guy the prize. And this is unusual, right? Like for, for most what I know, shooting competitions were sort of like, there were individual prizes, of course, for like best shooters, but there were also like waged between like militias of different cities, right? So like at Cologne, you'd host like the militia of Augsburg who'd come up and all the guys that have guns would go and shoot, right? And it's kind of this more or less bragging rights for the most part. But this, 100 florins is pretty good. That's a lot of money. And so like it makes sense that this guy who's, you know, a, he's a tailor, right? Zindelfinger, I think, is like a like a silk weaver or something like that. And he's stiffed this like big chunk of money. And uh, so he goes off to, you know, to hire Guts. So Guts essentially is declaring a feud on the entire city of Cologne is the idea. And because like the, the, the government of the city of Cologne refused to pay this guy's prize then everything. So any merchant traveling to or from Cologne, um, any merchant who lives in Cologne is subject to capture and ransom essentially by Guts. So to make a long story short, this, he goes and captures a bunch of uh, a bunch of merchants. He captures some servants and whatnot, and he ends up getting pulled into a. Basically, he he ends this thing spalls out, and he ends up getting into basically like a five way feud that involves like a bishop and another free city and another couple of independent knights that have also been hired by like Cologne and, and various other things, right? So this thing just kind of spills out into this massive, convoluted, complicated, but very limited. <laughs> like feud between all five of these guys. Um, and I believe they end up getting the hundred florins back for the, for the shooter. But yeah, so like this kind of thing is, this is the only time that he mentions like a feud kind of on behalf of just like a, a citizen of, of a city who got stiffed on this other stuff. Like there are a couple of other times where he talks about like wanting specifically to find a reason to feud with Nuremberg because it was a Nuremberg or artillerist who blew his arm off. Right. So he really wants to go, he really wants to go kind of hard after them. But as far as I've been able to see, I mean, shooting competitions are a big part of city festivals um, around this time, like fencing kind of competitions called Fechtschulen are starting to become pretty popular. And they're just like on feast days, right? Or during parades, like at Nuremberg, they've got the butcher's dance every year. And that would be basically a big fair that lasts for like two weeks. You've got everybody from around the kind of the area coming in for this massive market and so the, they've got wrestling competitions and shooting competitions and foot races and horse races. And like, it's just a big excuse for a, a big party. And, you know, to, to basically say like, hey, we've got this big purse, 100 florins for this prize. And then just be like, nah, nope, never mind. Right. And uh, but it shows the sort of complicated dynamics of this. Right. Like this guy's just a citizen, but he also has the right to declare a feud. So he does. And then he has to go find some muscle. So he goes and finds Guts and Guts works for him because, you know, that's a that's a, a justifiable reason to declare a feud. Right. So it's like you've got this kind of like urban citizen hiring a knight that he knows through this guy's brother in law to wage a feud against another free city. And, and that like that kind of multi layered thing ends up pulling in a bishop. Right. Like this is the Bishop of Bomberg. Like he's a really important guy. Um, and you're bringing in other free cities and everything that are getting involved in this thing. And it's like, it's, it's this, you know, massive, massive thing. And these, these kind of feuds are happening all over the place. You know, like one, like the city of Cologne could be a part of a feud with like dozens of different nights all at once if they, if there were reasons to. And so it's, it makes sense that this kind of dynamic would, you'd have somebody like Maximilian, the emperor trying to 
you know, clap this down, right? And in 1495 at the Diet of Worms, he did make feuding illegal. It was illegal, but people did it anyway, because, you know, without standing armies, without like these sort of big state troopers, right? These forces that you can just order around all of the people that you have that can exert force to control people like this are the same people that get a benefit from waging feuds, right? So they're not going to stop. And it's not like you can just tell them like, that's illegal. Like who are you going to have to arrest them? Right. <laughs> and then where do you put them when you do? Cause there's right. not like there's prisons. And stuff. Right. Like, yeah. And there's, you mostly just lock them up in some dude's castle and then hope that works out for you. Like it's, it's fair. It doesn't have any of the modern state apparatus for right. enforcing laws. Um, when Guts is actually put under house arrest, this happens a couple of times. So the the biggest time, the 16 year long thing, he's under house arrest and he's specifically told he can't ride horses and he can't like use weapons or whatever while he's on this without permission from the emperor. And so he stays there for 16 years and he like goes to weddings and stuff. And this is, he, we're kind of, it's implied that this is kind of when he gets a reputation as being like a raconteur, like a storyteller. But before that, Right after he's captured, he's actually working for Ulrich of Württemberg for like this big rebellion that he had in his in Württemberg. And uh, he ends up getting captured by the Swabian League and they have him under arrest in a tavern for two years. And Gotz has to pay the bill for the tavern. After like he's he cannot leave, right? And he has to like buy the food and everything. And he's he's left with the bill afterward. And it's like, yeah, this they're, they're, they don't have a prison they can put him in. They're not going to keep him in a tower room for for two years that's that's inhumane right that's that's you can't do that to people especially not the aristocrats as poor as they might be but uh but yeah yeah there's not there's not a whole lot of structure for that and so it's 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 all based on this honor system right and the honor system is also what's leading to the feuds right so it's this kind of intractable problem that something's got to give before this kind of cultural institution will go away and it's still not entirely clear exactly why it does it seems like just lawyers become more effective and like peaceful litigation without actually having to go kidnap people uh, becomes a more standard way of, of resolving problems between nobility or cities or, or what have you. That thing where you have to pay your bills is something I think a lot of people don't know about ransoming and capturing of lords, particularly in, throughout the Middle Ages, like in the 50, 14th, 15th century. If you're captured at a battle, like if you're the Duke of Orleans and you're captured at Agincourt and he's kept in England for like 20 years and becomes quite a famous poet in that time. But, like, he's kept in some guy's manner, and sometimes mm-hmm. they're moved around as a sign of favor or disfavor to, like, consider. But in addition to any ransom he has to pay, he owes his host for all of the food and housing he has been provided. Yeah. So, like, the bills for these things are insane, particularly yeah. if you're living like a duke. Right. You owe right. them all <laughs> of that money. And it's like, I mean, eventually, I mean, he gets kind of let out on, on separate negotiated treaty terms and doesn't actually pay everything back, which is another thing that happens but like you know same thing with king john ii of france who gets captured and obviously has a famously huge yeah. ransom and also on top of that like as a side thing like here's your accommodation bill you owe right, us for right. this yeah but like if you're a lesser noble that stuff really adds up you know like if you're a great noble and you're paying thousands of excuses you're for your, your ransom you're like okay and also i owe you this amount but if you're like if your ransom is quite low that cost of living could actually be significantly higher than what you owe as your ransom and another source of income for whoever's got you. Yeah. So it's it's a really interesting way to also kind of spiral yourself into debt if you happen to get captured a lot, which is yeah. a problem. Yeah, and the, the like that connection again between like the urban classes and the knighthood, especially the impoverished knighthood, 
is one of the big reasons that guys like Jakob Fugger become so important and powerful because Jakob Fugger was a banker and he, he made loans to like Maximilian, right? He becomes super powerful because he's known as a money lender who will lend to emperors, right? And that, that kind of really increases his power and becomes, he becomes, you know, he is, I believe in the 16th century, like the richest man on earth, at least probably, at least in Western Europe or Central Europe, but but yeah, there are people like that all over the place. And like, even when you look in places like Augsburg, like Fugger's not the only money lender. There are dozens of other guys who are almost as rich, who also make a habit of lending to knights and whatnot. And I have to imagine a big chunk of this was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to pay this guy for my, for my uh, feud. He's got to be paid, but he's also going to be pay- taking a lot of that money from booty, right? From capturing all this stuff, because that's all like, legal spoils, basically, or at least culturally tolerated spoils. So by 1518 or so, when Gotz is uh, he's captured in, they call it the Mechmul, the mousetrap, by the Swabian League, and he's put under arrest and everything. After, like By that point, he had actually already purchased a castle for 3,000 florins, and he had made a ton of money from feuding. Uh, there's at one point he talks about having captured 90 merchants from Nuremberg in like one little swoop. He captured like this entire merchant caravan, this huge thing, and ends up making money hand over fist. And that's really unusual because feuds, um, if we're to believe like Hilates Mora, who wrote the uh, the feud in early modern Germany, most of the time these were not profitable, right? It was a It was a cost you sunk in to maintain your kind of social credit rather than to like make money. And so the fact that Gotz was able to make money on this was like a particular kind of skill of his. Uh, and it wasn't very common. I think an interesting one about like exceptional people like that, like it can be tempting to see them as the norm. There's a similar thing in the Hundred Years' War with John Fastolf, who becomes insanely wealthy off the Hundred Years' War and for a long time was held up as like a, the war was profitable for England. And then you looked into stuff like these ransom fees that everyone ended up paying. You're like, actually, most... Most nobles went broke. Yeah, <laughs> doing yeah. this, you know, going off and fighting in a glorious war in that case. But and you know, the feuding, it, you can kind of see the economics of it don't really pan out. Like the arms and armor of a knight is very expensive. Mm-hmm. If you're hiring a bunch of other guys, they yeah. you might have to pay out their bills to equip them, presumably, uh, if they don't have that kind of money themselves. And then you're paying for a retinue to do some fighting, and you better be making money off that fighting, or else. It's the the bills rack up faster than yeah. you know the income comes in, particularly if you're unlucky. Yeah, you only really have to be unlucky once, right? Yeah, and there's uh, there's implications. He doesn't get into the structure of it all, right? But there's implications that one of the reasons Guts was so effective was because he made friends with the peasantry, right? Like when he when he's in an area, like he'll stop at an inn, he'll let people know, and I imagine probably a lot of that had you you basically just put it generous payment on the table and say like we're going to be in the woods over here bring us food every day right and but he's also paying for information and and one of the things that's very clear from reading his autobiography is that like it was his his ability to kind of like have this network of information and to exploit it for advantage very speedily was one of the reasons that he was so effective um and it's not you know we can again that sort of pop history take is like guts was obviously such this big beefy warrior dude who just like overthrew everybody and it, it wasn't it was he was very good with information. He knew the terrain really well. He counted on local guides and local help. Uh, he was friends with the local peasantry. Um, and he was somebody who was always able to kind of like maintain his sort of social credit in this very specific way that led to him having the success with his feuds, which I think is really, really interesting. And it's really it's it's a deeper thing than just like he was good at war. 
which obviously he yeah. was, but you know, there's, there's particular ways that it's kind of emphasized in his autobiography, which I think kind of makes it seem more complex and more, in my opinion, interesting. Another anecdote I remember hearing you recite that I struck me as very interesting was when he was in a feud with someone and he pursued them into a village and lost his crossbow in the village. <laughs> yeah. And then later goes and pays a peasant to go get it for him. Yeah. Which I think feeds in a bit to that idea of like, he's good at making friends with someone who's like, Hey, can you go get me this really quite valuable weapon? Like crossbows right. are quite expensive. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So this is a, like not even a declared feud. This is just like a guy he had an argument with at a tavern previously. Right. We're not even sure like with the, the kind of, chronology of this but it, it had been earlier there was a guy named Afian who says to him like you know what is what does this little lord want with us right just kind of putting him down so God's like oh this guy right and he sees him like across a field <laughs> sometime later and just like goes straight after him and I think so there's a couple of really interesting crossbow things that come up with this for for one thing they both have crossbows God's is in his armor which becomes clear very quickly because he gets shot in the chest by this, this, this connect, the serving man of this other knight who immediately flees into the nearby village, by the way, like the, the knight, this guy's boss just leaves <laughs> and he leaves his servant behind. Right. So Guts is chasing after him. Yeah, absolutely right, not dealing yeah. with this. Just like, and I'm out. <laughs> so Guts fires his crossbow from horseback, like chasing after this guy, he fires his crossbow. It goes over the back of the horse or whatever. Afian kind of pulls up on the other side of this hollow, sees Gots coming in down this lane and just hits him, bodies him right in the chest. And Gots talks about how the crossbow actually like broke on his armor and splinters went all around his head. So good shot from, from Afian there. And it was just, you know, good luck that Gots was wearing his armor when he was getting into this fight that saved his life probably. So Afian runs off into this village and Guts is like running around and there's another couple of peasants that are loading crossbows. And so Guts has to go like knock them over or knock the crossbows out of their hands or whatever. But like right as he catches up to Afian, uh, he talks about how like he doesn't have time to span his crossbow. And that's really the only detail he ever gives is that like whether a crossbow is spanned or unspanned, right? It's loaded or not, or the, even just the string is pulled back makes a big difference about the decision that God's makes, right? Like if he's got time, well, maybe he will span it again and load it up again. So he's got another shot, but if he's too close and the other guy is spanning or whatever, he has to get in there, right? Really fast. So he sees that, the, that, that Afian's crossbow is empty and so is his. So he rides up to him and he, he uses this term a few times. Um, he throws the crossbow at their neck. And I don't know, like, I, I sort of assume, like, he uses throw, like, specifically the German word throw. So I think he is just heaving the thing. But, like, he always talks about the targeting at the neck, which is a sort of a very strangely specific thing to, to aim at when you're throwing something. So I sort of wondered maybe throwing is something that's more just kind of a dialectic sort of a thing to mean, like, trying to use the crossbow is like a hook around somebody's neck to pull them off a horse or something like that. It's kind of unclear, but what is clear is that he heaves this crossbow at Afian who continues running. He like goes kind of tackles his horse and brings him down to the ground or whatever. And so Afian springs up, and just runs into the village again. And then the village militia gets out because there's this crazy knight chasing someone else through the streets. Right. So like the village militia is coming out and they've got boar spears and axes and crossbows and stuff. And God's realizes like, Oh shit, I'm surrounded and gets out of the village. And then later the bell is ringing in the village. So everyone from around is coming to town now because there's an emergency. So all these like armed peasants are running across the country to get into the walled city to see what's going on. So God ends up collaring this guy 
just this peasant who's run into the village and he captures him and he says, Hey, look, I left my crossbow over there, but it's too dangerous for me to go get it. So go get it for me. <laughs> uh, and presumably, which is great. Like, it's great that he's like, yeah, I want that back. He's not like, that's right. a lost cause. I don't, I'm not going to. Right. And presumably, like, I just threw that at a guy's <laughs> head. It's probably not worth getting. He's like, no, yeah, I want yeah. it back. Yeah. And presumably <laughs> he does. He never mentions that the guy comes back or anything, but like, I assume he got it back, but it, it is interesting that he, he makes it so specific that he, he rounds up this dude. He just like rides up and says, Hey, I left something really important to me. Go get it. <laughs> I was like the idea that he'd be able to find it. Like, like this is clearly like, presumably there's some description. Like this is what my crossbow looks yeah. like. I want it back. You know, it's better be my crossbow because there's other crossbows, you know, in the, in right. the environs right. to worry about. And this is the kind of an interesting era that he's in for the for the history of the crossbow because it's kind of beginning yeah. of the end. You know, we always say this that musket shooting competition means that we're we're getting matchlock mm. guns from the mid mid fifteenth century, and then the crossbow kind of ceases to be used in the Holy Roman Empire. I think in the fifteen thirties, fifteen forties for military yeah. use, it remains very popular yeah. for sporting and like tournament shooting competitions and that kind of thing. But before then, I mean, there's basically cross like several crossbow makers yeah. in every city in Germany. There. It's a very popular weapon, and there's a lot of them being made. And it's interesting that you have kind of more rural militias having them yeah. as well, which uh, you wouldn't necessarily have everywhere, but it would be a thing if they have money to to be trained in the use of them and to use yeah. them for maybe their own shooting competitions. So it's it's a cool era yeah. for crossbows, yeah. I think. There's uh, I know Augsburg in the 1520s had a couple of gun shops that were, they were making rifled barrels by the 1520s, right? And so like this is, relatively early in kind of the history of like the widespread use of firearms and we're already starting to see rifles and we're already starting to see these like very kind of precision shooting competitions and this kind of civic pride in having well-armed men who can shoot straight and that's really interesting right and it's a it's a carryover from the the same sort of you know the genoese crossbowmen come from the genoese militia because they they have to have they have to be armed to defend the city and they just happen to be kind of surplus enough that they can kind of hire themselves out in these big bands. And the same is true of a lot of Flemish crossbow militias um, and Flemish crossbow competitions were a really, really big thing between their their kind of militias. And the, so we have that kind of same dynamic that goes into, you know, the shooting competitions with the, the buxen, which is what gods would call them, the arquebus or the, uh, the musket, more or less. Which always sounds like insanely dangerous, though, because like, I mean, some of them you're in a field and you're target shooting, but stuff like the popinjay. Yeah. Like there's accounts of people using guns for popinjays where you put a big bird on a, on a tall pole and <laughs> right. shoot up at it. And it's real like shooting your yeah. pistols in the air kind of energy. It's like you're in the town square and you're just shooting guns right. up in the yeah. air, like absolute yeah. nightmare of that. And there's inter- there was an interesting, as a French historian, uh, Jean-Dominique Deluche, who does writing on this kind of crossbow culture in this era of the Holy Roman Empire. But one of the things he was talking about a while ago, I think in a Twitter thread, I thought was really interesting is after the crossbow stops being used by the Holy Roman, like by, by most military mm-hmm. armies, army is kind of a weird yeah, term yeah. for this, but basically the army of the Holy Roman Empire, there's obviously a huge decrease in purchasing of crossbows. So there's a big economic issue for crossbow makers. They used to be able to sustain themselves on steady business from everybody are now basically yeah. a specialist item now it's for shooting guilds and like fancy sportsmen and people who like a nice fancy crossbow which there's still some of but it's a much yeah. smaller market and there's an interesting one of the things he was researching was like if you are a crossbow maker what do you do about your son yeah 
you know, because traditionally you train him to be a crossbow maker. You would, you're an artisan. You would train him as an apprentice or, you know, if you don't have a son, you might train right, a nephew right, right. or a cousin or, you know, whoever the nearest, you know, person who's eligible is. And then some of this is kind of a question of like, some of them do still do it to be specialized. Some of them train to make gun stocks. Yeah. That's quite a popular like side work for crossbowmen because a lot of the kind of modern firearm stock is based on yeah. a crossbow tiller. So it's the same kind of people working on them. And then some of them just like, you're like, no, you're going to be right, a weaver right, now. Yeah. Something like I'm going to, I'm going to pay you to be a weaver. Uh, this is a de- This is a dying business and I'll shut up, shut up shop when I get too old and you're going to go yeah. learn a new skill. Uh, but it's an, it's an interesting period of time for that. Yeah. One thing I, I note a lot about Gots is that he's always feuding with cities and, and the free cities in the whole Roman Empire are a little bit distinct from other cities, but not entirely unique. But I like this kind of urban-rural split you have there. But also, I, I get a lot, because it's it's often Nuremberg and Augsburg that are coming up, which, to me, as a historian of medieval military technology, that's like yeah. the manufacturing center of yeah. German weaponry. This is where, like, the best plate armor in Europe yeah. probably is being made in Nuremberg and Augsburg yeah. in this period. I mean, previously... Milan would have been the central point. And Milan is still quite productive. Milan and its environment's greater Milan, if you will. But this is like the arms manufacturing center of Germany. And it's interesting that he's constantly feuding with them, presumably also buying weapons from maybe them. And and it's it's another one of those things that's so, it makes it so rich and complicated, right? Because like there's, you know, Nuremberg is also where like uh, Albrecht Dürer is working on woodcuts, right? Around the same period. He's 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 kicking around the same time Guts is like feuding with people over shooting competitions, and there's people sort of revolutionizing like art and and gun manufacturing and like making cannons, right? And like there's there's this yeah his huge kind of like centralization of like kind of military production in these two free cities, and like a lot of it has to be because they're both surrounded by country nobles who are constantly fighting with them. And so like the, you know, the Nuremberg militia, Nuremberg is a weird place comparatively because like comparing like Augsburg with Nuremberg, like Augsburg had, everything was guild based, right? So like uh, your service in the militia comes through your, your basically ability to be hired in the guild. And that's where your citizenship comes from. And that's where your rights and privileges and everything come from. But Nuremberg had this weavers revolt in the 14th century. And after that, they had no guilds. They had no like city guilds. So it was all run by like these rich patricians, right? And so like the guys like Villabald Pirkheimer becomes really interested in sort of like being sort of a leader of the sort of patrician led city urbanity, the, the militias and whatnot. So like Pirkheimer leads a contingent of the Nuremberg militia in the Swiss war in 1499. And he's involved in a feud actually opposite Gotts in 1502. Uh, when Gotz is uh, is working for Friedrich of Ansbach, the uh, this kind of country count um, out there, who's waging this feud against, against Nuremberg, and they have this big fight that's called the Battle of the Forest uh, in 1502. And there's a big, huge painting uh, that's in the German kind of it's in the German National Historical Museum in Nuremberg today. That's a painting of this battle, and there's like Willibald Perkheimer kind of prominent in the center. And I've gone and looked at it a couple of times to see if I can find a little guts in there somewhere, but he wasn't famous enough quite yet. I don't think when that painting was made, but it, it is interesting to see the kind of like you have that sort of civic pride of like, you know, Nuremberg is a free city. We have our own army. 
um, they're all fabulously well equipped because we make really great armor and weapons here as well. And they're so good that they they march to foreign wars, right? And they support the emperor in trying to conquer S Switzerland. And um, it's very clear from like Pirkeimer's own writing. And Pirkeimer also was a humanist and a correspondent to artists and and you know religious men. And he was a, a friend of like Ulrich von Hutten, who's another kind of famous humanist around the time. And so like there's there's a lot of this kind of palpable sense of like this martiality that he really wanted to project. Like he wasn't a knight, but he was very rich and he was a patrician and he was he considered himself a martial man, a, like a military man. Uh, and I find that dynamic really, really interesting because you have this sort of like fierce independency against all of these what they would call these robber knights that surround them in the hinterlands. Right. And Gotz is, is drawn into feuds against Nuremberg all the time and like specifically looks for them, right? Because again, the Nuremberg artillerist, <laughs> this unnamed Nuremberg artillerist that he's constantly trying to find. It reminds me a bit of that. That structure thing is really interesting because like all, there's a huge difference in how various cities structure their defenses. And there's a, the Duke of Brabant, which is in the Low Countries, but would be within the Holy Roman Empire uh, mm. broadly. Uh, in the kind of late 14th century, I think he restructures how the cities under his control do their militias because they're a bit like Augsburg where like if you were in a guild, each yeah. guild had to supply a number of soldiers. So like the butchers must bring this many and that and he was annoyed with how incompetent like random yeah. tailors were at fighting. So he kind of made a an effort to promote yeah. crossbow and archery yeah. guilds specifically, which don't in this era, like they don't make crossbows like the crossbow maker guild is a different thing than right. the crossbow guild, which is more like a shooting society. And so he would, he promoted this kind of, and then eventually changed how recruitment works. So they would, they basically on behalf of the city would supply uh, forces for him. But it's also this really double-edged sword because what you do is you've put a bunch of money into it, into this free city. And you're like, okay, now you have this very highly trained militia. And if the free city ever disagrees yeah. with you, which happens yeah, yeah. all the time, <laughs> then suddenly they're like, we close our gates and we put right. our crossmen on the walls, <laughs> come at us. And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. God. Well, and <laughs> you know? I, I find that sort of social situation really fascinating, right? Because like we, we see it all the time looking at Ask Historians on Reddit and whatnot, these questions about like, you know, how do you raise armies in the medieval period? Like you just go around and, and levy the peasants or whatever. But the, the reality is like, again, you can't like arrest or stop somebody like Guts from doing feuds because the people who would have to have the power and the skill and the means to do that are the same people who benefit from feuds. And it's the same sort of thing. It's like you want this kind of well-trained, professionalized urban militia to do your fighting for you. But then what happens if Nuremberg disagrees with what Maximilian's trying to do, which happens all the time. And so like so much of what Maximilian is trying to like this kind of comical series of Maximilian trying to get to Rome just to be coronated. And every time he's got, you know, a couple of free cities or a couple of, of rich, important kind of hinterland nobles supporting him. And then it only takes like one city to like not send a payment or their militia contingent or whatever. And it scraps the whole thing. And so there's this really interesting push and pull of, of the power. And it's the same sort of thing that happens within like mercenary companies, right? Where it's like, you have to pay these guys to do your fighting for you. And if you don't pay them, they won't. And there's just nothing you can do about that except pay them or not. And 
so often like all these these campaigns and everything just fizzle out because like Maximilian just cannot get enough money and he can't get enough money to keep his mercenaries paid. He can't get enough money to kind of, you know, lure Pirkheimer and his and his Nuremberg militia out of the city and whatnot. And it it's it makes this very interesting kind of very it seems almost not medieval because our kind of theory about medieval is like emperor at the top commands everyone. But it's it's so much more subtle than that. There's so much more power in a free city that has a good, well-equipped, you know, well-trained or spirited militia because they can just at, at you know, the, the, the sign of a paper can just say like, nope, good luck. I love the kind of degrees of it as well. Cause like, you know, it's, there's always this intense negotiation where you could be like, you know, Maximilian could go to somewhere like Nuremberg and be like, okay, I really need you to help me solve this problem with this robber knight who's in like Saxony and he's causing me issues. Will you do that? And they may be like, yeah, okay. Then he's like, I want to go to Rome. And they're like, absolutely not. That's way too far away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we're prepared yeah. to do like a two week trip with you to, to like deal with a problem right, that we right. care about. We do not care about Rome. And it is so far away. Yeah. Have you seen <clears throat> the Alps? Like, yeah. And that's this constant problem where like these cities will be like, oh, I don't really want to go fight that far away. That seems, right. that seems like a lot of work. And like, it's a lot of big thing with the low countries who again, have this very professional, uh, kind of militia force that people want to tap into and they're often like oh, we only really fight in kind of the north we don't really want to go anywhere else yeah yeah like we have yeah. enough problems here without with our constant revolts to, to not be going off and fighting and eventually the, the dukes of burgundy who like maximilian marries the last heir of and inherits yeah. all their lands but they eventually kind of get the, the the flemings to come and fight with them in the swiss wars which then go disastrously wrong yeah so yeah it's like it's a whole mess but it's really interesting that kind of that push-pull dynamic and like just how much are you offering them and how interested are they really in doing that and how invested are they which is always a problem with the emperor because the emperor is really invested in being the emperor and everyone else is a little bit not invested in you being the emperor (laughs) right yeah yeah we we like having an emperor but that doesn't mean we have to listen to you Yeah, and like so much of your real imperial power is just that you're probably one of the largest landholders. Like that's kind of how the Habsburgs yeah. work when they come in is that like they're just one of the biggest nobles and therefore yeah. command a lot of respect even beyond their being the emperor versus a lot of emperors and particularly in the era kind of right before Maximilian. There's been a bunch of interregnums. There's been a really messy era in imperial politics. So the emperor as a title isn't all that you know it gets a bit sexy people like being emperor but it's it doesn't actually offer you a huge amount of power which makes that dynamic really interesting and and weird much contrasted with something like king of france who's much more powerful like in practical terms yeah there's a like friedrich the third who is maximilian the first's father was like in a this long i mean it wasn't like a formalized like feud in the legal sense but he had this long struggle with his brother who was like the duke of austria and there's there is a couple points where like Maximilian is like besieged at court, like he's literally surrounded by armed men who want to capture him because his his brother, who's like ruling Austria, is unhappy with his sort of slice of the pie. And this is like the world that Maximilian comes into. And I think Maximilian really tries to to use this sort of soft power, right, where it's like he's not he is trying to go to Rome and he is trying to get involved in the Italian wars and he is trying to like you know, get as much property as possible. But at the same time, he's also kind of like paying into his reputation as being this kind of like this, this big, powerful knight, right? He's got these fabulous suits of armor. He's hiring artists and whatnot to make these triumphal processions celebrating his victories. And he's really kind of embodying the whole idea of knightly virtue, like in his person. 
And that works to some extent. And he's still sort of famously called like the last night, right? There was that Met exhibit a couple of years mm -hmm. ago called the last night that was all about Maximilian stuff. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's able to get to Rome to be coronated. And he's not right. He's coronated in like some, some tiny rural church halfway between, you know, Nuremberg and Rome. And it's sort of this kind of, he, he, he's never officially coronated. Right. So is he officially the emperor? And then, you know, his son, Philip, who's his son by Mary of Burgundy is like in Spain, his whole life. And then he's got, you know, it's, it's this sort of dizzying complexity of just managing this kind of like household that is sitting on top of the empire, but like how powerful is he really? And like, how much power does he actually have to wield? And it's a lot, but it's also, again, this kind of patchwork filtering of like doing favors for people and being perceived as the most powerful, even if you're not really. And you have that huge problem where like the more you accumulate in this kind of era, you don't have like a really good bureaucracy. So at a certain point, it's like, well, you now own right. like all this land and you have to negotiate with everyone in it all the time. And that's just going to yeah. be your life now. It's yeah. like trying. And that's I mean, Charles V kind of famously splits the Habsburgs up because having both Spain and the Holy Roman Empire is just too much. Like it's like this is unmanageable in one person. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where you have to start splitting the Habsburg dynasty because it becomes too big, which I yeah. think to us sometimes seems a little insane because it'd be like, well, why wouldn't you just make the biggest empire? And it's like, well, because <laughs> right, it's they didn't yeah. have fax machines even by then. Like they, they everything. Yeah, it's a long hand. way to Spain and you're at war with everyone in between. There, so yeah, you got to watch yeah. out for that. Yeah, uh, I love him. Emperor Maximilian's, I think, one of these interesting people, because if you talk to like historians of German politics and like the development of the state and stuff like he's maddening because he's he's so bizarre. But I study like medieval yeah. military culture and like the products of it. And he's brilliant. I love him. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I am with you. Yeah. Because yeah, it, he like the empire itself is this sort of anomaly in in the kind of typical story of the military revolution and, and the, the maturing of the state and whatnot. And it's like, yeah, France is centralizing and England is centralizing. And then there's Germany, which is just doing yeah, German just stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. My favorite thing I hadn't, I hadn't known about uh, Maximilian until fairly relatively recently, I was reading a book on jousting because Maximilian was a really committed jouster his whole life and, and invented yeah. several types of joust. Yeah. But one thing I didn't realize is he popularized the type of joust where you actually have a barrier in between the horses. That's yeah. that's a Mac that yep. if you picture a joust, like if you're thinking of a knight's tale, which is a perfect film and I will not criticize it, mm -hmm. even if this is anachronistic, <laughs> uh, that barrier down the middle to stop the horses from crashing into each other. Yeah, is a Maximilian thing like he didn't yeah. invent it, but he's he's kind of the one who popularizes this. Maybe the horses shouldn't crash yeah. into each other. Joust. It's like, oh, my God, you have been doing yeah. this well, for and, how and long that... without that barrier? Right. And part of that, too, was that it was a way to encourage horses from just running straight rather than shying away. And so there's a lot of stories about like earlier the tournaments before the turn of the 16th century or whatever, where like these people would be doing like, oh, they had dozens of runs at each other. But the thing was like, we're imagining the knight's tale, like broken lances, shattering people, almost falling off their horse and everything. And most of the time it was probably just like the horses running at each other and then they both just turn, <laughs> right? Like, I don't want to run at that. That's a big horse. I don't want to hit that. And so like being able to control your horse and everything was this big skill and not everybody has it. And so like some jousts were just terribly boring. So having this barrier, the horse is a bit more comfortable because the horse knows they're not going to collide with the other horse. And so it makes it more exciting. And then you have the Maximilian stuff of like the exploding shields oh, and like the 
the tilts where you're standing up on the saddle and uh, all this, this like the dozens of bizarre games that each take like, you know, customized suits of armor and customized harnesses and customized like spring-loaded contraptions that you're running with. I also love the the Um, pie to arm where you're mm -hmm. like, it's basically medieval early modern LARPing where like you... It's, it's oh, in a yeah. big field. Yeah. You're like, okay, we're all Arthurian knights, all right? And I'm King Arthur, <laughs> and you're Lancelot, and we're just going to yeah. ride around. And then if you, like, meet someone, you have, like, a joust with them, and it's going to be really exciting. Uh, and you're like, oh, you're King Pelinor. Yeah. We're going to redo the bit. From, and it's just, like, it's brilliant. It's like, <laughs> yeah. this stuff's great. Yeah, I love like, it. Why don't we, we should have more, more movies about this, like, insane, Yeah, you know, guys out in fields pretending that they're Arthurian knights. It's great. Uh, so one thing I think, I thought we'd probably wrap up on is, of course, the reason that we're talking about about Guts von Berlingen is he wrote an autobiography. And that's an interesting kind of thing in and of itself. And I think something interesting about as we're kind of getting into the later Middle Ages and the early modern period, that more and more of these things kind of survive or become a thing of like just some guy writing about his life. And it's interesting that Guts is is kind of like a straight by the letter autobiography in the sense that it's not like like mm-hmm. in the period I'm in, there's um, Jean de Boulle, who's a very important uh, French commander at the end of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. He writes this book called Le Jovencal, which is a semi-fictional narrative of his life where it, it kind of covers the story of a young squire who then like rises through the ranks through military successes to marry a princess. And it's all a little bit like drawn from his real life, but also very fictionalized. And that's all the kind of thing mm-hmm. you often see is something that's more like a straightforward chronicle or this kind of more weird fictional or written in verse or stuff. But yeah, what Gotts has is, is kind of a much more by the numbers, like autobiography, like you kind of get yeah. later in the 16th mm-hmm. century of soldiers writing down their lives. So I think it's an interesting work. And I don't know if you have anything you want to talk about how that was written or how it circulated. So we know it became most famous because it was reprinted in the 18th century. Um, so one of the reasons that Gotts is so well known today is that arguably one of the most famous playwrights in German history, Goethe, wrote his first play that was about Gotts von Berlichingen. So he, he, he's writing this, um, uh, what's the, the term, Sturm und Drang, right? Like this very Sturm und Drang drama about Gotts is this sort of like, almost like this sort of noble savage type character, right? Where he's like this kind of man out of time and he's somebody who's who represents this kind of older world in in the perspective of, at least from when Goethe was writing it, of of like modernism, right? And this kind of enlightenment philosophy that's getting everywhere. And this is sort of a callback to this kind of earlier, kind of more heroic age and whatnot. And that came about because there were just a handful of manuscripts. There were at least, I think, six manuscripts that were, you know, to be, to be super precise, right? A manuscript is something written by hand rather than printed. And so there were at least, I think, six copies of this original manuscript that sat in libraries or in personal collections for a long time until someone found it in the 18th century and was like, this is cool. And they reprinted it. And then a young Goethe found it. And then the young Goethe wrote, you know, the Gotts Berlicking in play uh, that became super duper famous and has been made into film several times now. So he wrote it in 1562 or around 1560 or so, like right before he died. So he was nearly 80. We know that he probably was able to write whether it was with his left hand or his iron hand, it's unclear. Uh, there, he does talk a couple of times about needing to have a scribe, like when he's in house arrest in that inn in like 1520 or so, he at one point needs to like sign a document and he has to have a scribe come in 
to presumably to help him. We're not sure. A couple of the other biographers have have made a have tried to figure out if he wrote with his hand or he wrote with his left hand or whatever. Um, I don't know that there's any way we'll ever know. In any case, um, there's a good chance that he probably what do you call it? Spoke it, orated it, and somebody dictated. Yeah, dictated. Yeah, and somebody else wrote it down for him. And this is probably true. Um, he again had this reputation as being this like great gifted storyteller, and one of the reasons he became popular was because he was just like a fixture of like noble weddings around Franconia while he was under house arrest, right? He'd get these permissions to ride off to go to a wedding or whatever. And then he couldn't fight. He couldn't wrestle. He couldn't ride. He couldn't shoot. He couldn't do anything. So he'd just like tell stories about when he could do that stuff. And it seems like that's kind of what led to the autobiography. And we know there were other autobiographies or other biographies being written um, around the same time that don't have those like chivalric trappings that like the Juvencel has, or like the history of William Marshall, which was even earlier, which is like you like you were saying is sort of this mix of chivalric rhetoric, chivalric kind of storytelling, this sort of heroic poem that they're also making about a person who actually did live. And Guts is like less literate than that, right? He's just kind of telling a straight up story about yeah, these are the feuds I got into, and this is what happened, and this is why. And I think that's really really interesting. There were a couple of others that were fairly contemporary. There's a biography of Georg Frunsberg. Uh, who is a famous German mercenary. He's a Landsknecht. He's considered the father of the Landsknechts today. And there's a biography, I think, written by not him. He might have been his son uh, or something like that. But it was written around the same time in the 1560s or so. And that was actually a printed book, not a manuscript, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, because, of course, we're into printed printed texts now. Yeah. Although I think people imagine that when, the, when movable type comes in, everyone's just printing books immediately. But it's... It's actually like mostly pamphlets initially because yeah. books are really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we are kind of getting into more, more and more printed books. I mean, Caxton's kind of around this time in England and he prints quite a few yeah. books. Well, and, and so I, I uh, one of my other hobbies is historical fencing. And I, I follow, I study a guy's fencing book that he wrote in 1570. That writer, his name's Joachim Meyer, wrote the 1570 book he wrote is a print. It's a huge behemoth of a printed fencing book. And then he had written two manuscripts before that. And so it's it's interesting to sort of compare the manuscripts with the print, right? Because like there's this very understood difference in audience. The the manuscripts he wrote for mm. specific noblemen. Like this is this is how defense I've written personally for you, this noble. And then he writes this print that anybody could buy, right? Like it'd be printed there in in uh he's not in Basel yet. It's uh Strasbourg. And anyone in Strasbourg who could go to a print shop could just buy this book and learn how to fence, right? And it's it's interesting that the same person would would see different utility in producing a manuscript versus producing a print. And that kind of thing is really common in the mid-16th century, right? Because like they they kind of have different sort of social cachet. It's almost like making a movie versus making a Netflix TV show or making a podcast versus writing a book, right? There's just multiple avenues to kind of get this kind of stuff out into the world and choosing a different one has kind of different kind of connotations or ramifications. And it's a great example of kind of technology coexisting, which I think a lot of kind of popular imagination, how this stuff works is like new tech replaces old yeah. tech. Very, very Siv, Sid Meier civilization, right. Yeah, yeah. right? Like new tech has replaced old tech. And really like, I mean, manuscript writing survived for quite a long yeah. time after printing became widespread because yeah, you say they have different audiences. They've, like it's it's much fancier to have a manuscript, yeah. handwritten manuscript book, 
or if you want to like produce a, a the way the art works is very different as well because obviously yeah. print you're dealing with woodcuts generally mm-hmm. and woodcuts can be very beautiful i mean if you, i love durer's yeah. work and it's phenomenal but not every woodcutter is durer right. <laughs> so, so some of them are pretty bad yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then versus illumination is is a manuscript thing although i think there are examples of printing books with blank spaces so you can illuminate for like an interesting bit of both options in there. Just it's sort of an interesting sort of technology thing. Like Gutz never really comments on it, but by around the Mechmul, right? He's besieged in this fortress by forces of the Swabian League. And he talks about how they need to, they're taking all the windows down and all the door hinges and they're melting down the pewter to make bullets. And so, like, he never really talks about it, but I don't think after that he mentions crossbows, like, ever again. But at the same time, there are times where he he talks about being in the Swiss War when he was just a lad. And there are guys with guns and stuff in there. And then a year later, he's riding around with a crossbow. And it's it's that same sort of thing where all this stuff is coexisting. And you're just taking the tools that are the best for the job or the ones you're most familiar with or the one you have most access to. Versus just like, oh, that's obviously the gun is an improvement. I will use a gun now because we've reached a higher level of technology, <laughs> right? I mean, I think the Knights Hospital require crossbow training as part of their training up until the 1550s. Yeah. Uh, and they're mostly, at this point, they're mostly a naval organization. So that kind of makes sense. You're like, yeah. gunpowder gets wet. Crossbows right. mostly don't. Right. right. Like it's, and it ha- they each kind of have their specialty and uh, they, they they kind of coexist and the balance will change over time. Obviously, right. printing and guns win out. Win out is probably the wrong way, but like they they persist longer while the other ones kind of become much more of a minor element. Although, I mean, crossbows remain popular. Yeah. People still hunt with them today. Yeah. They never completely go away. One thing I was really interesting. I thought was I mean, obviously talking about why we care about guts is in part due to Gutta, and it's an interesting parallel to that kind of period with William Tell, who's obviously not William Tell isn't a real person. Right. But William Tell is first kind of written in this manuscript by this guy, Egidius Tschudi, and his Swiss Chronicle, which he's, I think it's like the 16th century. Yeah, like he's kind of around the same time as Guts. Uh, he's writing history of Switzerland, not mm. his own life. But he's like like 1505 to 1570s. And then that that's a single manuscript copy that is he wrote for one purpose. And then that's kind of reprinted in the 18th century in abridged format and then picked up by Schiller in 1805 to write his play, William Tell. So the same kind of popularizing of these Germanic figures in this German romantic movement, putting these people really into popular imagination beyond their initial small local area. Because presumably people who know Gotz's castle would know who he was, but broader Germany is different. Again, Sam William Tell has an enduring legacy within Switzerland, but now everyone knows who William Tell is. Because of Schiller's play, and then Schiller's play is adapted to the the famous mm. opera, which gives us the William right. Tell overture that everyone yeah. knows. So it's, it's an interesting kind of that as, these aspects of, of kind of Germanic myth, and then kind of wrapped into that Romantic movement, uh, which reminds me of my favorite thing I think I've ever read about that movement specifically, which has almost nothing to do with other things we talked about. But it was in a biography about Clausewitz, and it was uh, describing I think it might have been Goethe or a contemporary, a friend of Goethe's writing about how uh, the rationalist French could never understand the romantic German soul. <laughs> and it's brilliant because it's like, it's a hundred percent the opposite of their stereotypes yeah, today. Yeah. And it's only 200 years right. ago, you know, and he's like, cause he's like, it's the French revolution. You know, everything is metric. Yeah. Everything's rational. They're abolishing religion. And he's like, and it's the German romantic movement. And they're all like, you know, it's this, this, you can never compare them, you know, the romantic right. German who's <laughs> full of art and, and emotion 
and the rationalist, you know, yeah. uh, like robotic Frenchman. It's yeah. Like, it's great. I love that kind of encapsulating of how every, how history changes our perspectives yeah, on yeah. people. And, and you kind of can't rely on this idea of like stereotypes being true more than even like a hundred years right. ago. I wanted to end on a, on a truly fine note to discuss popular culture and, and Guts von Berlingen. Do you know the manga Berserk? Yes. I'm, well, I haven't read it. Okay. I'm familiar with it. I've seen, I think, one okay. or two of the movies, but I haven't, I've never read the manga. I probably should. Because that really like, I was like, oh my God. This guy, this man yeah. named Guts with one iron right, yeah. arm. Yeah, uh, I got a. Most of that, I think, is very based on like Hundred Years' War kind of, but like some of it is clearly drawing from this era and that name. If nothing else, was like. Yeah, I've heard from people who who are very confident that it is based on Guts from Berlin King, which I'm, you know, it's possible. Uh, I I don't know enough to I don't know enough to know, unfortunately. That is something I would love to know. If anyone is listening to this and knows more about. Japanese absorption of like Western medieval culture. That's the thing that I'm, I'm always fascinated by, particularly for my era, like Joan of Arc cropping up in Japanese popular culture is always fascinating to me. Very popular kind of references to her in Japanese strategy RPGs, mm-hmm. you know, to Joan of Arc or La Pucelle or that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm always fascinated, like how they're absorbing that period yeah. of history. And I would, I mean, I, I think it's too much to not to be a pure coincidence that this Guts with an iron hand and Guts von Berlinken with right. an iron is the famous mm-hmm. iron-handed individual yeah. and, and in a famous play by Goethe, right. which, you know, is timed well for to be kind of something that would have been made its way into Japanese culture, because, of course, 19th century Japan is translating huge amounts of, of Japanese works. Yeah. I have, I guess, weird side pet theory. There's this weird version of France you get in a lot of Japanese yeah. culture that is kind of a weird mashup of, like, ancient regime royalty and also post- clearly post-revolution yeah. uh and i'm like increasingly like actually is this just france as it appears in the count of monte cristo <laughs> yeah maybe because the count of monte cristo was translated in the mid-19th century and it's classic work yeah. in in and everywhere like in japanese in addition right. to everywhere else right. i'm like actually this feels like alexander dumas france yeah yeah you know that's what this is like so i'm curious about that same thing of like you know a lot of our image of gots and william tell and stuff is crafted by these german romantics i'm curious about their far reach. So if anyone does know about that, uh, tell tell me or come on the podcast and we'll like pretend that there's a connection <laughs> to crossbows. Yeah. And I, I will talk about Japanese representation of the Middle Ages. That'd I'm great. I'm uh, I'm kind of curious as brief and unrelated aside also. But so there's a, a famous science fiction work. It's several novels called Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. And the main character is a, a torturer and headsman. And Gene Wolfe wrote this, I believe, in 1982. And there is a famous journal that was written by a German headsman who lived in the late 16th century. And was he was the executioner of Nuremberg. And there's this famous sort of journal of his. And I, I sort of wonder, in reading Book of the New Sun, there are a couple of execution scenes that are, as far as I'm concerned, straight out of this executioner's journal and I, I i i've never seen anyone make that connection before and as discussed as book of the new sun is it's one of probably the most considered one of the most like literary one of the best science fiction series ever written and i've never seen somebody make the connection between i can't remember the executioner's name but there's a there's a great book called faithful executioner by joel harrington that is a analysis of his journal it's not a reprint of the entire thing but it it kind of goes through sequentially and kind of contextualizes it and everything that wasn't around in 1982 but the translated journal was and so i'm pretty convinced that gene wolf 
read this and used that as a big inspiration for how he represented sort of torture and state violence in that series, because there's just so many details that are just like, that's, that's German headsman stuff specifically. And I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. So a whole Roman empire, it's, it gets up everywhere. It's in, it's in all the pop culture. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, you know, surprisingly influential in that way. I think people don't think about it as much because a lot of our concept is very Anglo-French, but yeah, yeah. Roman empire, it was a big deal. I really like, I, I don't know if I'd recommend it to everyone, but Peter Wilson's bi- book on the Holy Roman Empire is a really yeah. interesting history of the the institution itself, even if it is a bit dry. Yeah. I prefer it's his also, book on the Thirty Years' War for like rip-roar and good time. Yeah, yeah. I appreciated Wilson's The Heart of Europe, I think, is the name of, of that one, because yeah. a lot of that was about kind of tackling this this sort of historiographical issue with the Holy Roman Empire where like people were always trying to make it make sense with the sort of state building theory. And so a lot of the interpretation was really weird, right? Because like they're kind of reading against the grain to like find out, oh, no, no, they actually were centralizing. See, it was just this problem that, you know, and Wilson was one of the the first ones I read that was just like, no, it was kind of a mess and here's why. And that was why the book was 4,000 pages long. (laughs) (laughs) I actually took a break. Yeah, book. I read it halfway and then I put it down for like a month. Yeah, and I went back to it. Yeah, I was like, I need like an intermission for yeah. this book. Yeah, I need to take a break, read some different books, and then we'll come back and, and read the rest of it. Yeah, it is quite a lot. Yeah, so on that like mixed book recommendation, <laughs> <laughs> if that sounds appealing, then you should read it. Yeah, but <laughs> with that ringing endorsement, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this was fun, and of course. People can find out way more about Gods von Berlingen on the Murder Hobos podcast, which has two episodes, an episode and then a Q&A episode, which is the mm-hmm. format. Uh, and they can also find out about a bunch of other interesting people. I quite like the episode on John Brown. I think we should talk about John Brown more. Yeah. Uh, he will not be featured in this podcast because <sighs> unless someone finds a John Brown crossbow connection, right. then I'm we'll all to. in. I'll, I'll start the rest thinking. of the podcast <laughs> is John Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did find a Jamestown crossbow connection recently. So, That's you know, we got a little bit of America, you yeah. know, but I, it's still about 250 years to, to go yeah. before we get a John Brown crossbow. But if, <laughs> any, if any figure of the mid 19th century was going to be linked to a crossbow, I would bet money on it being John Brown. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's got he's got that energy. Okay, thank you for coming on. Yeah, maybe course. we'll have you on again. Are you, you might do William Marshall sometime. I'd like yeah, to that'd be Marshall. I think that'd be really fun. Yeah. Thank you again, and thank you for listening to Let's Talk About Crossbows, a podcast about crossbows and crossbow adjacent topics.